So today we're continuing our sermon series through the New Testament book of Ephesians. And so today we're, we come to the very end of Ephesians chapter 1, looking at verse 19 to verse 23. Um, some of you were here at the beginning of Ephesians. You think, wow, we're still at the beginning of Ephesians. But, but we're at the end of the beginning of Ephesians. And so that's, 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 that's important, it's making progress. And so while you're turning to Ephesians 1... I want to remind us that the second half of this opening chapter in Ephesians is, is a prayer or the recap of a prayer that Paul has been praying for the Ephesian church. Now, it's, it's a prayer. It, I, I may not need to say this, but I'm going to say it to you for me, okay, because I know I need to hear this, that, that if you're like me and you, you have a, a Bible reading plan that you try to work, you're trying to work your way uh, through the Bible, I have to admit that, that often I am tempted when I'm reading the Apostle Paul's letters and I come to one of his prayers, I'm tempted to skip through it, to, to really speed past it. I'm tempted to, to default to seeing his prayers. We see in lots of scattered throughout his writings in the New Testament to see his prayers sort of like, like a garnish. Okay, it's there, but, but it's there for decoration. You know, it's, it's not really the meat. It's not the heart of the matter. And I, I don't want us to think, okay, that Paul gave us the, the heart or the meat of Ephesians 1 in verse 3 to verse 14, and now there's just this, this prayer. That's all it is, this, this garnish that we can just skip past. See, don't overlook, don't underestimate Paul's prayers, which we find recorded in the Bible. They are the holy, inspired, inerrant, God-breathed Word of God, too. And they have much to teach us about prayer. They have much to teach us about beautiful and glorious doctrine and theology. They have much to teach us about application for living the Christian life. Now, before we, we look at this final portion of Paul's prayer, let's not forget what we've already learned about this prayer, that Paul has been praying uh, with unceasing thanksgiving for the Ephesian Christians, because he's heard this report about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and about their love for all the saints. And Paul prayed, that even though he's heard about their faith, he's heard about their love for one another, their love for all the saints, he's prayed that they would grow in their knowledge of God. They would know God better. They would have a true knowledge of the one true God. And we saw last week that he prayed that God would enlighten the eyes of their hearts, so that they would know the hope to which he has called them, and that they would know the riches of their glorious inheritance in the saints. And I mentioned this last week, but those, those two statements, that their eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, so they would know the hope of their calling, and they would know the, the glorious riches in their inheritance in Christ Jesus, are, are the first two statements in what one commentator called a, a tricolon crescendo. That's going to be completed with the next statement that we're going to see today. And, and, and these three statements, that they grow in length and they grow in intensity and magnitude. And so it moves from the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened so they know the hope of their calling. The eyes of their hearts may be enlightened so they know the, the riches of their glorious inheritance and the saints. And then today we're going to see that Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so they may know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And then the rest of this prayer in Ephesians 1 gives the ultimate demonstration of this immeasurable uh, great power of God's towards those who believe. Now, I'm going to read all of this prayer 
from verse 15 to verse 23, even though we're only preaching through verses 19 to 23, because I want us to not miss the, the overarching context of it. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, life-giving word. I'll begin reading Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to walk through these verses together. Beginning in verse 19, Paul writes, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? So remember, this comes after Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts will be enlightened, that they would see and they would grasp and they would know the hope of their calling. And their eyes would be, uh, their hearts would be opened, enlightened, that they would see, they would know, they would comprehend, they would grasp the, the riches of their glorious inheritance in the saints. See, put it another way, Paul prays that they would have spiritual eyes to think back on how God called them to saving faith in Jesus. They would have the eyes of faith to look forward in hope and confidence that one day God would glorify them. And they're called to know and trust in that their glorious inheritance in Christ is guarded for them, and they are guarded for their inheritance. That God will bring all of his people, every one of them, every single one of them, all of the way home. And after that, Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would know, what we read in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. See, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians 2,000 years ago and for Christians today is to look back at our calling to saving faith and to look at and forward to our glorious inheritance. But then Paul calls the Ephesians then and us today to not forget about the here and now, to not forget about the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us now, today, in this life. See, Paul prays about our hope and about our riches, and now he prays about his power. See, our hope and our riches are secured by God's great power. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. You see, looking at verse 19, you'll notice that this verse contains a deluge of superlatives and synonyms for power which kind of rush at us like, like, like floodwaters, just washing over us. So, for example, look at verse 19, and, and you, you won't notice this in our English translation, but trust me, it's there in the original Greek text. There are four words that, that mean power or strength or might that, that are all here in verse 19. 
So for example, and what is the immeasurable greatness? Or that phrase could be translated, the superabundant magnitude of his power. And that Greek word is dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite. And the first of those four words in the original Greek text, which mean power. Toward us who believe according to the working. And that word working is another one of these words that means power. We actually get our English word energy from, from that word. Of his great might. Great and might are two different Greek words. Both of them mean power, might, strength. And so, so Paul is just piling up word after word after word for power. See, all of these words for power are used to describe and highlight the superabundant magnitude of God's power, but you can't miss that phrase, toward us who believe. It's not just God's great power, but it's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. I mean, do you realize what this means? Toward us who believe, I mean, that's a qualification. What that means is that all of verse 19 is for all of God's people. Toward us who believe. Not to all of us who have, who have great faith. Not to all of us who have strong faith. Not to all of us who have strong enough faith. But to all of us who believe. Even those with the weakest faith. So that means verse 19 is for you, dear Christian, regardless of what happened last week or last night or this morning. The question for us is, do we believe it? See, Paul says so many incredible things in the closing verses of Ephesians 1, the closing verses of this prayer. And in many ways, they're simple enough to understand, but, but they do stretch us when we try to really evaluate, okay, do we believe them? Do we trust them? And to try to help us get at that, consider what Pastor Ian Hamilton says. This is a long quote, but I think it's very helpful. He says, unlimited exceeding power is toward or in these Ephesian believers. Power enabling them to overcome temptation. Power to resist the pressure to compromise. Power to cope with blasted or dashed or crushed hopes. Power to overcome indwelling sin. Power to persevere to the end, bloodied maybe, but still standing. It's vital to grasp that this power is not the possession of the favored few or some elite category of Christian. It is toward us who believe. All Christians, however young or weak, have the same immeasurably great power acting for them and in them. Weak faith is not as comforting or as joyful as strong faith, but because it is united to Christ, it is the recipient of God's immeasurable power. Whereas Sinclair Ferguson put it, even the weakest of Christians still get the same strong Christ. Now, perhaps you, you hear verse 19 and, and your response is, okay, Richard, okay, but I see what it says, but how am I supposed to wrap my head, wrap my heart around the immeasurable greatness of God's power, this superabundant magnitude of God's power? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Paul goes on to tell us that you can't do it on your own, that you need God's help to do this, right? That's why Paul's been praying that God would 
enlighten the eyes of your heart. God must open the eyes of your heart so that you can see and you can grasp and you can know and you can understand this. However, Paul does go on to give you, to give us, to point us towards the supreme demonstration of the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And so look with me at verse 19 and 20 together. Praying that the eyes of their hearts may be enlightened, that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Okay, so, so do, you, do you see what Paul just said? God's power for you, even you, dear Christian, is not merely like, it's not merely similar to the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the grave on that first Easter morning, but God's immeasurable power toward you is that very same power that raised Jesus from the grave. That very same resurrection power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave is at work in us, in me, in you. That very same power raised us to new spiritual life, and that very same power is now at work in us to conquer and to put to death our indwelling, besetting sins. I mean, look with me just at verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see, Paul points us to the resurrection as a demonstration of God's immeasurably great power. You know, throughout the Old Testament, the, the, the biblical writers point us back to creation, to the creation account, to demonstrate how powerful God is, to demonstrate his might and his sovereignty. In the Old Testament, we're pointed to the, the Exodus account and God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. But do you see that the picture that Paul gives us now in the New Testament is by pointing us to the resurrection? And the same resurrection power is now at work in you, dear Christian. Now keep, keep looking at verse 20 and notice the phrase, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul's talking about the events that follow the cross. That God raised Jesus from the grave, Jesus ascended to heaven, and Jesus sits enthroned, exalted at God the Father's right hand. And Paul's going to call us to keep thinking about this. Okay, this is not just a phrase that he mentions and moves on. Okay, he's going to, he's going to camp out here. He's going to double-click on this. He's going to highlight this and force us to think about it. And, 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 you know, I think if you're like me, you don't think about this often enough. And so thinking about the ascended and exalted Lord Jesus Christ sitting at God their Father's right hand may stretch us a little bit, but let's, let's get stretched. Let's, let's stretch ourselves. Let's think about this and why this matters. Okay, now, and I'll give you a story. Several years ago, when I was one of, I uh, was an assistant pastor here, I was uh, pastoring young adults at our church, and there was one young adult, young man, who, who became a Christian. And uh, he, he, was, he was relatively unchurched, and he came to know Christ, and it was, it was exciting. And so, you know, in addition to him coming to worship Sunday after Sunday, I, I invited him to join a little, a, a small group, a men's small group that I led with a group of men. We met over at the Starbucks right here by the church. And on the first morning that he came, I, um, I said, hey, listen, let's, um, 
I like for everybody to introduce themselves to each other and, and tell a little bit about um, how, how you became a Christian. And so all the guys went around, they told their stories. And when it was this young man's turn, you know, once again, this man didn't know much about the Bible. Uh, I'm sure he had never read Ephesians 1, verse 20. Um, but he was very excited. And he said, you know, guys, listen, I'm a brand new Christian. I just got to tell you guys, I'm so thankful to be saved. And I'm so excited to think about one day that I'll be sitting at God's right hand in heaven. And everybody's eyes got big. And everybody said, well, well, okay, let's not get ahead of ourselves. You know, there's, there's somebody already sitting there. And now I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to this in a few minutes. I'm going to come back to this in a few minutes. But look at verse 20. Do you see who's already sitting there at God the Father's right hand? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. See, the Lord Jesus is seated at the place of honor, at God the Father's right hand in heaven. The Paul's words in Ephesians 1 are not merely a, a poetic or picturesque way of thinking about Jesus in heaven. Paul's, Paul's not a very sweet guy. He's not being sweet here. No, Paul's words are a deliberate echo of Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm and a psalm which the New Testament writers refer to, cite, or allude to around 30 different times. You know, perhaps Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And so Psalm 110 begins this way. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. See, the risen Lord Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, enthroned in majesty and power. And this is where Jesus' physical, resurrected, glorified body is right now. Now, maybe you never thought about that before, but, but Paul is going to say more about this as we make our way through the book of Ephesians. For example, for example in Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6, we read this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, is, is that not stunning? Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, you know what that means, don't you? That I kind, I kind of set you up earlier with that story. You know, my, my friend was imprecise, but he was more right than what I first thought. So you, Christian, are seated with Christ there in the heavenly places through your union with Christ. The Christians experience this immeasurable greatness of God's power through our union with Christ in his death and in his exaltation to God the Father's right hand. It's an incredible thought, and there'll be more on this in the weeks to come as we make our way through Ephesians, but I hope you see that far too many of us you know, think far too little about the exaltation of Christ and what it means for us, what it ought to mean for us. And don't miss that Jesus is seated at God the Father's right hand in heaven because Jesus accomplished salvation for his people. Jesus' earthly mission was accomplished. It's finished. So he sat down. You know, as the, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10 that the priests, the priests daily stand in the temple offering sacrifices but after our great high priest, Jesus, made the once for all time sacrifice 
you know, he, he sat down. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the perfect, sinless life that we have failed to live. He lived the life of righteousness. The righteous life that we need because we don't have self-righteousness. We don't have righteousness in and of ourselves. And Jesus died the death on Calvary's cross that we deserve to die. He died that death in our place, on our behalf, as our substitute, to make full payment, full atonement for our sin. Paid our sin debt in full. So that all who trust in Christ are washed clean, thoroughly, completely washed of our sin. It's not just that we're washed clean. Praise God, that's true. Praise God, it's true. Our sin is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. But for all who trust in Christ, his righteousness is counted to us, credited to us, imputed to us. We're not just washed clean, but we are dressed, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so listen to how Hebrews 1 verse 3 puts it. He, Christ, It's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That Jesus is seated at God the Father's right hand because he has accomplished salvation for his people. It is finished. The single once for all time sacrifice for sins has been made on the cross. And the glorious point that Paul's making in our text is that this same power that raised Christ from the dead, this same power that exalts Christ to God the Father's right hand in heaven is toward us who believe. It's toward you, dear Christian. Do you believe that? I mean, it's almost as if Paul is saying, dear Christian, regardless of what you are facing Regardless of how you're struggling, how you're suffering, lift up your head. Lift up your gaze above your present circumstances, above the present people, above the present opposition of this world, and realize if God is for you, and he is, then who can be against you? If God is for you with his immeasurably great power, And the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ is for you, and he's seated on his throne, and he is. If God is for you, then who can be against you? And oh, how often do we need to be reminded of this? Now, Paul's not finished with the prayer. Look with me at verse 21 and the beginning of verse 22. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, and he put all things under his feet. Do you realize what what Paul's doing? He's, He's calling the Ephesians to lift their gaze. He's calling them to realize 2,000 years ago that Caesar is not ultimately ruling over them. He's calling them to realize that the the local authorities in Ephesus are not ultimately ruling over them. Jesus was, and Jesus still is, sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning over all his people, over all things. And so, I mean, look at these verses. Paul seems to use every word he can think of that could describe an earthly power or a spiritual power. And Paul makes it plain that the risen Christ 
is exalted, not just above them all, but far above them all. That Christ is seated at God the Father's right hand, and that place where Jesus is currently sitting is not some ordinary chair. He's not beside him on the park bench. Jesus is sitting on a throne. He's currently reigning and ruling as the sovereign king of the universe. This means that nothing, no nothing, can prevent or derail your hope to which you have been called in Christ. This means that nothing, no nothing, can threaten the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. Dear friends, if we... If God graciously enlightens the eyes of our hearts so that we understand what Paul is saying, we'll realize this means everything. Jesus is seated on his throne, and he rules and reigns over all. All means all. Therefore, our hope is not in who wins elections here in the U.S. Elections matter. Christians should vote. Christians should vote to elect the wisest leaders. However, our hope is not in political elections. Our hope is in our risen, our exalted, our seated king upon his throne, far above his and our enemies. And so listen again to verse 21 and the beginning of verse 22. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. See, these verses echo what what we read in the Messianic Psalms, like Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 8, verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. These Old Testament Psalms looked forward to and they pointed forward to the Savior who was to come. And now, in our privileged position in redemptive history, this side of the cross, this side of Jesus' resurrection and ascension is exaltation. We know that these Psalms have been fulfilled in Christ. In his life, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation. And I know know that we may look out on this fallen, sin-stained world and we can be tempted to doubt whether Jesus really is sitting on his throne, whether he really is ruling and reigning over all things. But he is. He is, dear Christians. I mean, look back to these verses. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. So listen to how Sinclair Ferguson summarizes this. There is no rule greater than Christ. There's no authority that can thwart his purposes. There's no power that can withstand his. There's no dominion that can prevent his advance. That is true in the present age and also in the age to come. Magnificent though this statement is, Paul has still to state his applicatory climax. Christ is all this, not for his own glory alone, but to the church. He reigns over all things, subdues all his enemies, withstands all sinister evil forces in the universe in order to safeguard and bless his chosen people. And look what we read in in verse 22 and 23 as we finish this chapter. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, there's so much we could say about these two verses. I just want to make a few observations. First, don't miss how Paul says Jesus' ascension and exaltation to God the Father's right hand is a gift to us, the church. Okay, if we think about the, the events of Jesus' life and ministry, I, I think it, 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 it's common and it's right to think about God the Father giving us Jesus the Son at the incarnation at Christmas. That's common and that's right to think about a gift from God the Father to us, giving us the Son. It's also it's common and it's right to think about God the Father giving us the Son on Good Friday to go to the cross, to die the death we deserve to die in our place. But what Paul's calling us to not miss is that God the Father gives us the gift of the risen Lord Jesus and his exaltation to God the Father's right hand in heaven. Richard Phillips points out, no less than in the birth of Christ, no less than in his death, God has given Christ to us. If his birth brings us joy, if his death brings us peace, then Christ's ascension, his taking up the throne for us, ought to give us a final confidence and hope that nothing can ever shake. Now look again, look again at verse 22 and 23. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. So the second thing to notice is that Christ is our head, we are his body. As we move our way through the book of Ephesians, we're going to see that Paul uses many different metaphors to describe our union with Christ. He uses the metaphor of a family, of a building, of a marriage. However, the primary metaphor is this one, a head with its body. Okay, and in case you didn't know it, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but in case you didn't know it, your head and your body are inseparable. Okay, you separate them, you, you are no longer you the way you were before. And so... Such is our spiritual union with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We are that intimately connected with our risen and exalted Savior. Listen again. or Look at verse 23. Which is his body? The fullness of him who fills all in all. Now verse 23, it's a short verse. Theologians have been arguing about what this verse means for centuries. There's no telling how many Ph.D. dissertations are written about verse 23. I'm going to save you all the trouble. I'll just tell you what it means, okay? I think, I think, I think that the consensus is we can agree on this. Paul is saying something significant. Paul is saying more than merely the truth that Christ fills his church by the Holy Spirit, which is true and is important. From the day of Pentecost onward, followers of Jesus are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're filled by the Holy Spirit. But Paul is saying more than merely the truth that Christ fills his church by the Holy Spirit, which is true and is important. But what Paul is saying is even more profound than that. And theologian S.M. Baugh helps us understand this. He explains, given that Christ is exalted to, his, to the heavenly realm over every other conceivable power, he nevertheless fills all of creation with his sovereign presence in and through the church, his body and fullness in this age. 
This truth adds even more to assure the Ephesians that Christ's great ascent and exaltation to glory and power was for their benefit and that they share in its bounty. Or put another way, it ought to add more to assure to you, dear Christian, that Christ's great ascent and exaltation to glory and power was for your benefit and that you, that even you, share in his bounty. So what are we to take away from this prayer? I know this prayer stretched us in certain ways. You, dear Christian, have the resurrection power to walk in newness of life. You have the resurrection power to walk in newness of life as you love, as you trust, as you follow your risen, ascended, and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. So is there power that can tame your tongue? Is there power that can subdue your anger? Is there power that can heal your bitterness? Is there power that can kill your lust? Is there power to enable you to resist temptation? Is there power to enable you to stand against the pressure to compromise? Is there power to enable you to persevere and to endure faithfully to the end? And the answer is yes. Paul says, yes, Christ is risen. He's exalted. He is seated on his throne. He rules and reigns over all things. Over all things, far above all things. Therefore, no one, no circumstance, no opposition can ultimately threaten our salvation. Rather, our reigning and ruling Lord Jesus Christ uses all things, all circumstances, all people, all opposition to ultimately be instruments in our sanctification and our spiritual growth in Christ's likeness. You see, Paul's prayer is that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, be open to see the immeasurable greatness of God's resurrection power for and at work in each and every Christian, even in you, even in me. Now, and I, I know that these verses, they, they call us to, to lift our gaze, think about things we don't normally think about. I know it's, it's common for us to think about, yes, Christ lived a sinless life. He died on the death, praise God, died on the cross, praise God he did that. But thinking about the events after the cross, thinking about his resurrection, thinking about his ascension, thinking about his exaltation, thinking about him sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning over all things. These are things we ought to think more about. So let me share with you one last quote from Sinclair Ferguson. These are the privileges into which we enter by God's grace. We need our eyes open to see how rich we are. We live too often below the level of our privileges. Like mountaineers who reach high altitudes, we find it difficult to breathe in such rarefied atmosphere as this. Sadly, we are tempted to descend to lower ground where the climbing is more manageable for our spiritual lungs. But if we cease to climb, we will never see the glorious realities that await our vision. No wonder then if we remain short-sighted Christians. May God open our eyes to see. You see, I think that image, that's getting at the heart of what Paul is praying for these Ephesian Christians. That they're doing well. He's heard this report about their faith. He's heard this report about how they love one another. 
And while Paul is praying that God would open the eyes of their hearts, they would know God better. They would go know God deeper. They would climb and they would seek to lift their gaze and to think about this risen, ascended, exalted Lord. Amen? Amen. Let me pray this prayer for us. Heavenly Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, please give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of you, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called, what are the riches of our glorious inheritance, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.